Our reading is from Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26, and you will find that on page 1101. So that is Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26, on page 1101. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water And the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. When they came off out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at the Azotus and travelled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. May God bless that reading. Thank you. And thank you all for welcoming us so warmly. Thank you, Phil, and the whole church for having us here. Actually, it's Stephen Dimitriou's fault. Uh, He was at uh, college a few years ago, and I overlapped with him for one year. And he was wearing his hat back to front then, and he's still cool. Uh, We've got Becky Forrester. I see her picture on the board at the back. We've got the Pintos I've mentioned, James and Anna. Have I forgotten anybody else that's at Oak Hill or has been recently? So it's lovely to have that connection. Uh, So... Let's just pray as we come to God's word. Father, we love your word. We're amazed that there are stories about ordinary people 
and exotic, amazing people side by side. Lord, your word speaks to us. It cuts us to the heart. Speak to us today, Lord, we pray, about your world and your gospel. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I wonder what's the very first thing you think of if I say the word Ethiopia. What's the first thing that pops into your head? Maybe you thought about Africa and Africans. Or maybe you're thinking of Ethiopia as quite an exotic tourist destination. I know Gail and Richard are. Maybe you thought of the Ethiopian royal family and the last great emperor of Africa, Haile Selassie. Perhaps you thought about Band-Aid and Bono and the Feed the World song with the famine images playing along in the background. Maybe Rastas come to mind with their green, gold and red caps, the colours of the Ethiopian flag. Maybe long-distance runners, if you like to watch the athletics, crowding out Mo Farah in his final 5,000 metres race. Or maybe you didn't think of anything at all. But unless you've been there for yourself, and I know that some of you will have, I can guarantee that your initial reaction to the word Ethiopia was determined largely by your age and the media coverage that your generation got about Ethiopia. But what did Dr. Luke, the writer of Acts, expect the word Ethiopia, Ethiopian, to conjure up in the mind of his readers when he wrote his history? What did his first century readers have in their minds when they heard that word, when they heard this story? I'm going to quote something now written ten centuries before Luke wrote Acts. See if you can guess who's writing. And also, listen out for the Ethiopians. Here it goes. Tell me, O muse, of that man of many resources who wandered far and wide after sacking the holy citadel of Troy. Many the men whose cities he saw, whose ways he learned. All the gods pitied him except Poseidon, who continued his relentless anger against godlike who? Odysseus. Yes, this is Homer's Odyssey. Until he reached his own land at last. Now, Poseidon was visiting the distant Ethiopians, the most remote of all, the farthermost of men, some of whom live where the sun god rises and others where he sets. So for the Greek poet Homer, if you wanted a shorthand way of saying something like the edges of the world or Timbuktu, that word was Ethiopia. And it wasn't just Homer. Strabo, a Greek geographer, said that Ethiopians come from the very extremities of the inhabited world. Well, if you haven't heard of Bono, I know you won't have heard of uh, Strabo and those guys. But here's the point. For over a thousand years, Greek and Roman historians, philosophers, writers, poets, naturalists, the David Attenborough of the world, Pliny the Elder, others, they had no better shorthand for saying the very edge of the world than Ethiopia. So what's Luke saying to us in Acts 8 when he tells the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? He's telling us that the good news of Jesus Christ is already on its way on its way to the very ends of the earth. And as we watch this guy riding off into the sunset in his chariot in the dust, the gospel itself 
is on the move. But to understand why that is such a big deal at Acts chapter 8, we need to think a little bit about the structure of Acts. So keep your hand in Acts 8 and flip back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. It's just 8s and 1s, so it's all going to be nice and easy. Uh, We're going to look at Acts 1 verse 8 and then Acts 8 verse 1. In Acts 1 verse 8, the risen Jesus is there speaking to his disciples. He tells them the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them. And then, what does he say? You will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the first quarter of Luke's book, chapters 1 to 7, that's all about the growth of the church and the spread of Christianity In Jerusalem, the city. So you've got the coming of Pentecost, chapter 2, right through to the stoning of Stephen, chapter 7, all in Jerusalem. No mention yet of the countryside Judea around, nor Samaria, nor the ends of the earth. Then flip across to Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. In some ways, it's the reverse text. It picks up the same geography. Luke tells us that on that day, the day of Stephen's death, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout, where? Judea and Samaria. Skip down to verse 4 and 5. Those who had been scattered did what? They preached the word of God wherever they went. Philip went down to Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. Now, The first half of chapter 8, it tells us about mass conversions in Samaria and the growth of the church there, which is a miracle in itself because you and I both know that the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. So we know what's happening in Samaria. What about Judea? Well, it's happening there too. Luke doesn't tell us very much about it. He did tell us those who have been scattered preached the word of God wherever they went And he gives us a few clues. He expects us to read between the lines, does Luke? For example, look at the end of our our passage, 8 verse 40. The end of our story, when Philip and the Ethiopian part, where did Philip end up? He appeared at Azotus, or in the Old Testament, that would be Ashdod, it's a coastal town in Judea, and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Look in chapter 9 too, you don't need to turn there, but take my word for it. The Apostle Paul hits the road, sorry, Peter hits the road, and he is going to visit the saints, 9.32. First in Lydda, a town fairly close to the coast, then Joppa, 9.38. And then he ends up, Peter does, like Philip in Caesarea. Look at chapter 10, verse 24 for those reference points. But what about the ends of the earth? Where does that fit into Luke's scheme? I'll tell you what, if you read the book of Acts too quickly, you would think, you'd be forgiven for thinking that they don't get a look in until Acts 13, because that's the start of the great missionary journeys. Paul and Barnabas getting sent off there. Actually, in terms of human planning, that is the first place. That's the first concrete indication we get that the gospel's going to the ends of the earth. But A closer reading of Acts tells us that there are so many hints and precursors along the way. For example, Pentecost, Acts 2, 3,000 converts. Where were they from? Luke details out 16 places, points around the compass, 
This is chapter 2, verse 8 to 11. He deliberately lists places from the north, the south, the east, and the west of the then known world. It's a hint. The gospel is going to the ends of the world. Then, of course, in Acts chapter 10, we read about the first true pagan Gentile who comes to Christ. What's his name? It's Cornelius. He's an Italian. He's an Italian army officer garrisoned at Caesarea. And here in our story in chapter 8, we've got another big hint with this Ethiopian eunuch. A big hint that Jesus' gospel was always hardwired to reach the ends of the earth, whether or not his disciples really understood it. You see, as soon as Luke says that word, Ethiopia, everybody knows that he's now talking about the very edges of the world, the outer extremity, the periphery, the farthest place imaginable. You see, as the gospel spreads out from Jerusalem like ripples on the surface of a pond, one of the amazing things about it is that the disciples, even the twelve apostles who understood the gospel inside out, didn't plan any of it. If you'd have given them a score on their intentional cross-cultural outreach as a response, let's say, to the Great Commission, you'd have to give them a big fat zero, wouldn't you? Nil point. And here's our first main point. Let's frame it as a question. Who is the great missionary hero in the book of Acts? Is it perhaps Paul or Barnabas with their great missionary journeys that occupy Luke from chapters 13 to 20? Maybe it's Peter, the first convert, the first preacher to an out-and-out pagan, Cornelius. Or maybe you think it's Philip because of what he did here in chapter 8, first with the Samaritans, then with the Ethiopian. Well, the answer is no. None of these are the great missionary hero of Acts. The great missionary hero of Acts is God himself. The great cross-cultural evangelist is God himself. It is he who planned from before time began that the gospel was for all nations. We're going to hear more about that in Isaiah 25 tonight. It was he who took full initiative in the first half of Acts as the gospel spreads beyond Israel's borders. You know, the humans in the story, even the wise apostles, they either didn't really understand what was going on, or they were busy playing catch-up. Our God is a missionary God. His gospel was always intended for all nations. Gospel DNA is inherently cross-cultural. It's hardwired to spread. Has that thought ever struck you hard? Whether you and I understand it fully or not, whether you or I get involved with it or not, the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. Why? Because our God is a missionary God. When Dr. John S. Pemberton invented a black sugary liquid in Atlanta, Georgia in 1886, he didn't even know if people were going to like it. So he tested it downtown at Jacob's Pharmacy on the customers there, and they seemed to enjoy it. He had no idea of the global power of that black drink he just invented. Just 14 years later, Coca-Cola had spread to Europe and Asia. By 1940, Coca-Cola was manufactured in 60 different countries. Today, it's become truly global. 
it's one of the few phrases that you can go just about anywhere in the world and say, and people understand what you're talking about. I never found an Ethiopian that didn't know about Coca-Cola. Do you know it's the most popular drink, either Coke or a, a drink manufactured by that company, it's the most popular drink in every country in the world bar one. You're thinking North Korea. No, it's not. If you look at this map here, look for a little speck of blue. It's Scotland. We got any Scots in today? Yes. What's the most popular drink? Maybe we shouldn't ask this. I don't know. Is it whiskey or iron brew? Yeah, there we are. Yeah. <laughs> you see, some, apart from Scotland, some things have total global power and can achieve total global domination. It's, it's in their nature. It's in the nature of Coca-Cola. You know, Pemberton never planned it that way. It was just a happy accident for him, wasn't it? He stumbled upon a lucky formula. The gospel, however, was destined and designed by God himself to shed its light into every corner of this, his world. Our God is a missionary God. It was always intended for all nations. Samaritans, Ethiopians, Italians. And I, for one, I thank God that all nations includes us strains English with our dog-grooming salons. And if you're here and you're German, French, Nigerian, Indian, Egyptian, Chinese, Arab, Bolivian, wherever you're from today, you're included too. Our God is a missionary God. Well, if we've thrown the first spotlight on God himself, what about the human agent, Philip, that God chooses to use? Let's think about him. In Fleming novels, the Q always seems to pick 007, doesn't he, as his agent of choice. It's not hard to see why. He's suave, sophisticated, sexy, seemingly indestructible. James Bond, in many ways, is the likeliest of heroes. But what about Philip? No, no, not Philip. Philip is the unlikeliest of missionaries, and Luke presents him as such. And you know what? This is the unlikeliest missionary encounter. Luke is deliberately presenting the whole story as impossibly absurd. And I'm going to give you three reasons, among many, why I think that's true. Here's the first one. Firstly, Philip was not an apostle. He was just a humble church servant, a really ordinary bloke. We first meet Philip, don't we? It's not the Apostle Philip from the Gospels, but we first meet this Philip in chapter 6, the first seven verses there. He's introduced. He's one of the seven, one of the seven servants. What's their job? To distribute food to the widows. He was a food bank worker, not a preacher. In fact, the whole point of their selection, those seven, if you look back to verses 2 and 4 of chapter 6, was that so the apostles could give their full attention to prayer and the ministry of God's word without any distraction. And throughout chapters 1 to 6, Luke has been stressing the importance of the apostles as eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. Again and again, Peter, James, John, the others, they'd been with Christ from the beginning. They'd eaten with him. They'd lain down at night, slept together. They'd traveled together. They'd eaten the Last Supper. These guys had watched him die. And three days later, and over a period of 40 days, he had appeared to them, the apostles. They'd watched him ascend into, hev into heaven, Acts chapter 1. 
But this Philip, he wasn't one of them. He wasn't one of the twelve. He hadn't seen the risen Christ. He'd just heard about him. In many ways, he was just not qualified. He was the waiter. Secondly, why leave Samaria? First half of chapter 8, what's going on in Samaria? Philip is there, waiter though he is. He finds himself in the middle of something of a revival. Luke tells us that crowds were listening to the gospel, receiving it with great joy, verse 4 to 8. Mass conversions were happening in Samaria, signs and wonders to boot. It was also amazing that Peter and John, apostles from Jerusalem, were dispatched to get involved. Verse 14. Now, surely all these new converts were going to need organizing, getting into churches, discipling, teaching. There was an awful lot more work to do in Samaria, surely. Who could ever think of leaving such a ripe harvest field? Philip was an apostle. Samaria was too good to leave. Thirdly, there's nobody in the desert. Luke is at pains to stress just how deserted this desert road was. Look at verse 26. What does the angel tell Philip? Go south on the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Notice that little insertion, the desert road. The sentence doesn't need it. It was as though Philip was going to doubt his own sanity if it hadn't been stressed. There's nobody there. That's what deserts are, isn't it? They are deserted. And the Greek word for south there is a little bit ambiguous. It can also mean noon, high noon. Nobody travels at noon, the heat of the day. I'll tell you what, it was doubly sure that there would be nobody on that desert road. So from the responsive heaving cities of Samaria to the southern Judean wilderness at high noon. No, Philip must have been hearing things. Now, there's a whole lot more I want to say about Philip, but I just don't have time. I want to point out some of his positive qualities. You go home and study this. In Acts 6, he's called full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Here, he's a good listener. He listens three or four times before he opens his mouth. But open his mouth, he does. He doesn't think that just his life will speak. I want to talk about the fact we meet him again in Acts chapter 21, where we see him as a family man still in Caesarea, with four unmarried daughters, showing hospitality. This guy had an all-round ministry. Uh, Luke, at that point, doesn't call him Luke the deacon. calls him Luke the evangelist. That's the kind of guy he was. But we don't have any more time to think of him. I'm wanting to stress that he was the unlikeliest of missionaries. Our third spotlight, we've thrown the spotlight on God as the missionary hero. Philip as an unlikely missionary. What about the Ethiopian himself. So there's Philip. He's on the desert road. He's thinking he's going crazy. It's high noon. He hears a noise. He sees the dust. Along comes a chariot. I wonder who Philip thought was coming along. Maybe an important Jewish leader from Jerusalem on official business. That would have been good, wouldn't it? That would have been a really good person to hear the gospel. And along comes this black, out-of-town eunuch. Things couldn't have seemed less promising He must have been thinking, I wish I'd stayed in Samaria. You see, if Philip was an unlikely missionary, then this Ethiopian was an equally unlikely convert. This guy must have seemed like a total loser. 
from the start. He looks different from me. He's not from around these parts. He's just one individual. Till now we've been dealing with crowds. Anyway, he's headed out of town. We're never going to see him again. There's no hope of discipling him again. There's no church where he's headed. Ethiopia is just about falling off the edge of the world. And to top it all off, well, he's a eunuch. Moses had been quite clear about that, hadn't he? Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. Nobody who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting, sorry about that, may enter the assembly of the Lord. Couldn't be clearer. This guy was a waste of time. If anybody was a million miles away from God and his kingdom, then this guy was it. He was irredeemable. He was unsavable. But Luke seems to delight in his description of this exotic visitor with no embarrassment. He lingers over his description. He gives us eight separate different things about this guy. Verse 27 to 28. Here they are. Bang, bang, bang. One, he's an Ethiopian. Two, he's a eunuch. Three, he's an important official. Four, he's in the treasury. Five, he works for the queen of the Ethiopians in an area we now call the Upper Nile or Nubia. Uh, six, he'd been to Jerusalem to worship. Seven, he was on his way home. Eight, he was rich enough to have an expensive scroll. The scroll of Isaiah, which he was reading from, sat there in his chariot. In fact, Luke tells us that last thing, that he was reading from Isaiah twice, so it must be important. What's Luke trying to draw attention to with all this information? Is it his impairment or his importance, or is it both? I think in lingering over the details here, Luke is delighting in the fact that this guy is the fulfillment of Peter's words from that Pentecost first ever Christian sermon. Remember what Peter said in Acts 2, verse 39? The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord will call. Who could be farther off than this guy? I want you just to notice the Ethiopian's question too. He's reading, as you know, from Isaiah 53, that famous servant song. If you want to keep your hand in Acts 8 and flip there, it's page 741. So this servant song, Isaiah 53, Israel has been promised a faithful, unlike Israel herself, servant, a suffering servant, who is going to do for God's people what she could never do for herself. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And Luke quotes some of the passage there. Words written 600 years before Christ. The Ethiopian doesn't ask Philip what. He doesn't say, what's this all about? Or what's going on here? What does it mean? He doesn't say what. He says, who? He wants Philip to explain to him who Isaiah is talking about. Is it he himself, Isaiah the prophet? Or is it somebody else? Verse 34. Tell me, please. Who is the prophet talking about? What an introduction that is. Wouldn't you love to get an invitation like that to share the gospel? What an invitation to, to explain how Isaiah and the whole Old Testament has always been pointing to Jesus. And that's exactly what Philip does. Verse 35, starting with that very passage of Scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. Peter, Philip pointed him to Jesus. You know, this sounds a little bit like another story that Luke's told us. People on the road, spending time talking together about the Old Testament. Sounds a lot like the road to Emmaus story, doesn't it? Where Jesus spends time with two disciples who didn't fully understand the scriptures 
Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I sometimes wonder what exactly Philip said to the Ethiopian. Luke doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us very much at all. He just gives us the bare bones. We just get the good news about Jesus. But what exactly did he say? What does Luke mean? Well, the fact that it was good news was really important, wasn't it? The Ethiopian obviously thought so. What's the last thing we hear about him? He went on his way rejoicing, verse 39. Philip had obviously said a whole lot more than that simple phrase that Luke puts in his mouth. I think he took time in the chariot explaining a whole lot of stuff about Jesus. You see, when the Ethiopian sees water, he asks to be baptized, verse 36 to 38. How did he know what baptism was, for example? I believe that Philip spent a lot of time in Isaiah 53, much more than just the few verses that Luke gives us. He would have told him about Christ the Saviour's earthly life. That's Isaiah 53, verse 1 to 3. He would have told him about the reality of human sin and how Jesus gladly bore it. That's Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 6. He would have told him about Jesus' passion, his ill treatment, his cruel death. That's Isaiah 53, verse 7 to 9. He would have told him about Jesus' ultimate triumph, his resurrection, his exaltation. That's Isaiah 53, verse 10 to 12. This guy would have got the full gospel from Philip, Philip the evangelist, and he would have asked him to respond in repentance and faith. Just as Peter asked the Pentecost crowd, repent and believe and be baptized. Well, that was a nice story, wasn't it? What's it got to do with me? Here we are, as it were, standing on that road with Luke, watching the chariot disappear into the sunset, wondering, what was that all about? Well, maybe some of us are a bit like the Ethiopian eunuch here today. We need to repent and believe the gospel. Maybe you need to hear, perhaps for the first time, that Jesus is not bad news, but good news, because he is the saviour that God has promised from before time and right through the Old Testament prophets. He is the one that God sent to live the perfect life that you and I never could. He is the one who was sent to bear the weight of all that sin that we know we can't bear ourselves. He is the one that uh, on the third day overcame death and defeated the ultimate enemy. Now, if that was good news for the Ethiopian, it may be good news for the first time for some sat with me here today. You might think you're a million miles away from God. But honestly, I can tell you with my hand on my heart, you'll never be as far away as this Ethiopian guy. You may feel you're completely insignificant too. Just one in a crowd. God can't be bothered with you, an individual. But look at the love and the grace that God lavishes upon this solitary individual. And as this Ethiopian accepted that message and repented and turned to Christ, was baptized, as he went on his way rejoicing, maybe some of us need to respond in the same way today. 
So when we pray in just a minute, pray with me at the end and then talk to one of the church leaders before you leave today about what you've done. But maybe you're a little bit like Philip here today too. You've loved the Lord for a long time. You've served him practically for a long time. But really, you're the most unlikely of cross-cultural missionaries that you could ever imagine. Anyway, isn't cross-cultural evangelism for the experts? It's best left to them. Your situation, your qualities and qualifications, or lack of them, your inclinations, nothing seems to fit. Well, the book of Acts makes it quite clear that cross-cultural missionary work isn't just for the experts, no, no. It's for every Christian who has ever lived, serving in different capacities. Is the Lord reminding you today, through Philip, the ordinary bloke, the waiter, that he has a role for you in world mission, no matter how unlikely that seems? Well, if that's you today, talk to one of the church leaders or your small group leader in the week. Don't delay. And maybe as the gathered church here today at Bishop Hannington Hove, the Lord has a message for us corporately too. Are there people from the ends of the earth right here in our own backyards? People who need to hear the gospel. Local government stats from a local website indicate that there's a disproportionate number of Arabs here. Is that right? 0.8% of the population of Brighton and Hove, twice the national average. Four times the regional average, closely followed by Poles, other Eastern Europeans, East Asians. Are there ways we can be on the lookout in our neighborhood for people who may be from the very ends of the earth, places where you're not going to get to travel, people who may even be the very last people on earth we might expect to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? How can we meet them and send them on their way rejoicing? Can we meet them in our roads? What about our homes? What about our church buildings? What about the new hall just down the road? Zhenzhen was a friend's friend that Maura and I met in Reading. She was a Chinese student. 2007, she was studying at Reading University. She came to a few things at church, just an ordinary church like this, heard the gospel, responded, and asked Jesus to be her Lord and Savior. She was with us till her studies finished. And when they concluded, she went back to China. For a while, we didn't hear anything from Zhenzhen. Then the news started to come through as we were thinking, as she found Christians, what's happened to her faith. She began to tell her family the good news. First one, then another, also believed in Jesus Christ. You see, ordinary Christians in Reading, 2007, having an eternal impact in people on the other side of the world in China that they could never meet and would never meet, is bizarre, isn't it? It's amazing, isn't it? To the ends of the earth, in our own backyard. You know, there are Zhenzhens coming soon to a town near you, to Brighton and Hove. They're probably already here. Shall we pray? Father God, we love this story, the most unlikely person you used as a cross-cultural missionary in that encounter. And the gospel went with that man to Ethiopia. Who knows what happened after that? Lord, for those of us who need to respond as the Ethiopian, give us grace to turn to you in repentance and faith and to see you 
and feel you as good news in our lives. Help us to yield to you as Lord. Help us to cling to you as Savior. Forgive us for our sins, we pray. For those of us who are like Philip, not the ideal and obvious candidate, but we know we need to be involved in global mission, show us what you would have us do. Forgive us for our ethnocentrism. Forgive us for our obsession with our own culture and our own little lives. Help us to lift our eyes. Help us to see the whole world and the global church and those who still need to hear the gospel. Help us to get involved, we pray, and show us how. And I pray for this church too as it thinks about its neighborhood, its community, and the people here from the ends of the earth. Give them wisdom as they think and pray about how to reach the ends of the earth by sending missionaries and supporting them well, yes, but also by being on the lookout for Ethiopian eunuchs, for Xinjiangs, and people like them in this very area. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.